when you ask people what matters most, they'll tell you family and relationships and all these other things. And yet they don't necessarily live a life in line with those priorities. I want to say that it shouldn't have to take the kinds of things it took for me to make those big changes in my life. For me, it took literally being hit by a car. It took being caught in a hurricane. It took a cancer diagnosis. It shouldn't have to take those things to make changes in your life. Today, we are talking with Joanne Green, whose new book, By Accident, a memoir of letting go, was called Amazing, Harrowing, and Deeply Human by none other than Anne Lamott. The book covers a period of her life full of pain, shocking trauma, but also light and hope. If you want to dig deep about everything from the pressures placed on women to do it all, to the way that being forced to be still can ultimately be good for us, you'll want to tune in to today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about a competition between clear and frosty scotch tape. Anyway, let's get to it. I'm very glad you are here. I have such a good conversation for you today that I'm really excited about. I have Joanne Green, whose new book is about to be released. It's called By Accident, A Memoir of Letting Go. And oh my goodness, the blurbs for this book, they are a dream. I wouldn't even know where to begin to summarize our conversation. Joanne was a pioneer of radio and television in California in the 1970s. Today, she co-hosts the podcast All the F-Words with Gabby Moskowitz and also hosts her own solo podcast, In This Story, in which she sets personal essays to music. Joanne was so wonderful to talk to, and we covered so much from the pressures placed on women to perfectionistic and achievement-oriented tendencies to the shocking multiple traumas that she experienced in just a matter of a few years' time. We talk about how families change, how to build traditions, how to cope with negative self-talk, and how to stop running from feelings. She was a fascinating person to sit down with, and I'm so glad to share it with you. So without further ado, here is the interview. Oh, and by the way, you can check out more of her work at joanne-green.com. Both Joanne and Green have an E on the end. That's joanne-green.com. Here we go. So, Joanna, I am so glad to be talking with you today, and I know we have so much to talk about. Thanks for being here on Baggage Check. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. So, we were just chatting, you and me, before the show, (laughs) and I feel like we touched on so many things already. One thing that I think we have in common is that we are mothers, mothers in a little bit of a different stage. My kids are going to be leaving the nest in the near future. Your kids have left the nest and are starting to think about raising children of their own. But you mentioned this idea for so long in your life, wanting to have it all, be it all, achieve, check every box fulfill every identity. And I think that's something that resonates not only so much with what I see, but so many things that I hear from other folks, especially women, 
but not limited to women, of course. But I wonder, is that something that you always felt like from the time that you were little, that the world was to be achieved, you've got to meet an excellent standard, I know you went on to do amazing things with your career, you've got to be checking every box. Is that something that you felt like since you were little? Yeah, yeah. I was the third child in a family with older parents, big age difference between my siblings and me. And, you know, if I brought home an A minus, the implication on my mother probably never actually said these words, but the implication was, well, who got the A? Mm. Like, why did you get an A minus? And I think this is true in many families. You know, there's, you're the smart child or the this child or the that, right? So my sister was the good child and I was Mm. the smart child. So there was an expectation there. Mm -hmm. And I was a creative kid, an imaginative kid where my mother, my sister, and my brother were all very linear, uh, very much math people, very, all Scorpios, ironically, Mm -hmm. and very, you know, you're in or you're out. There is a right answer. And I was never coloring in the lines. So I wanted to be an actress, and I loved to write and make up stories and ultimately built a career in radio broadcasting, which... You know, when I started out in the 70s was kind of a cool thing. Now radio is what? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> People go, what? The, what, the radio? <laughs> you mean serious? <laughs> but then, you know, pre-internet, everyone in my generation was glued to the rock and roll radio station. Yes. And that's, that's where I built my career. And um, it was wonderful. But I also somehow got the message that my home had to be impeccable and that I had to go to every PTA meeting and volunteer to run the book festival or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I needed to be the consummate mom and just all of it. And, and that comes at a price. Mm -hmm. It most certainly does. I'm imagining, just imagining you as a trailblazing female in the 1970s, 80s radio was the fact that you were a woman something that was front and center a lot? Absolutely. Were you able to put it to the side? How did that affect you? I didn't put it to the side at all. I had a feminist talk show. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a show called Women Making Waves. Get it? It's a double entendre, airwaves, yes. trouble. So, oh, yeah. No, I didn't put it to the side at all. It was very unusual. And there were a number of different times in my career, even In college, I was the only female in my radio production class. And the instructor, who wasn't that much older than the students, made some ridiculous sexist remark. And I went up to him after class and I said, don't do that. Just don't do that. That's not okay. And he he said, you're right. I was like just trying to bond with the guys. And I said, that's exactly what you were doing at my expense. Not okay. Right. So... Right. You know, that and then once I applied for a job as a morning anchor on a radio station and they told me that, no, that the anchor had to be a man and that the reporter, they had two jobs open and that if because I was a woman, I needed to apply for the reporter job. And I said, but I'm not a reporter, I'm an anchor. And they said, no, we need the voice of authority as the anchor. And I said, uh. who was the voice of authority in your house growing up? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. That toll that it took in terms of I've got to do this, I've got to be the perfect mom, I've got to be the perfect trailblazing professional. 
how would you begin to describe the toll that it took on you personally and how you saw the effects of that? I am a person who moves really quickly. And when under stress, which is for the most part self-imposed, I will say, I just get faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And I keep going until I'm spinning like a whirling dervish. And then I don't feel myself getting tired. I'm more like a cranky child who mm. gets overtired and then hits a wall and some foolish little thing makes me burst into tears. Mm-hmm. So that's more the kind of thing that was happening. I would just keep going and going and going until I needed some way of stopping the music and saying, I don't have to produce another thing today. Mm-hmm. It was almost like the idea of relaxing was too self-indulgent. Yes. Who are those yes. people who watch television during the day? Ooh, right? Mm-hmm. Or read a book in the middle of the day? A novel? Yeah. yeah. And I work with people a lot where not only does it feel self-indulgent to relax, but it feels inherently uncomfortable because it's not what they're used to. And when they're in motion, 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 like it sounds like you were, to be still almost takes more effort because it involves going against the grain. You know, I've worked with clients where it's like, this is fundamentally uncomfortable for me to be still because my brain is itching saying, you need to do this, you need to be taking care of this. Or maybe it's an old voice from my childhood saying, you're lazy if you're still. I think in our culture today, especially, busyness is a status symbol. And so the idea that you're not really up to much in any given moment feels kind of sinful, I think. And not in necessarily a good way of, ooh, this is good chocolate, but almost like, ooh, there's something maybe wrong with me that I'm not as busy as everybody else, even if I'm just taking the afternoon off. But what I always try to point out to people is that breaks can strengthen you. They're not a sign of weakness. They're often really a way to build strength. And if people don't do it, like you said, then they become very brittle. They're going to break when they should have been able to bend. Like I think so many people can relate to what you said about the idea of just losing it over something that seems relatively minor because you've been stretched so thin, you don't have any more room to give. The other thing, I think all of that is very true and certainly was true for me. In addition, I think if you keep moving, you don't have to necessarily feel. Mm -hmm. And so often I think it is a way of numbing yourself to difficult or uncomfortable feelings. Yes. Yes. And people who have real discomfort with feelings and want to avoid them because those feelings are scary or those feelings automatically mean something's wrong with me or I'm embarrassed to have these feelings, I think are very prone to that. I work with a lot of really high achieving people who essentially dig into their work as a way to turn off what they would feel if they're truly allowing themselves to be still. Because we don't have a great track record, at least in the United States, of allowing ourselves to sit with feelings, right? And of course, there are lots of ways to numb yourself with feelings. I think a lot of times people now, it's just involves, you know, I'm still not being productive, but I'm scrolling through my phone, so I still don't have to feel I'm numbing myself with some kind of stimulation. 
to not have to feel. Or, or I'm having a drink or I'm waiting until the kids go to bed and then I'm having a little bit of marijuana just to downshift and mm-hmm. then be able to give myself permission yes. to stop. Yes. This idea of revenge procrastination people have talked about, especially with kids. It's like, why do I stay up until 1.30 a.m. doing nothing? I know it's bad for me. I know scrolling through my phone for two hours in bed is not the best for my mental health. And yet it's like this subversive act of taking back time. Nobody's asking me for anything right now. My kids are asleep. I'm not on the clock at work. I can choose to go into a Wikipedia rabbit hole and read about something ridiculous if I want to. And this is my only sense of control during the day because the rest of the time I feel like I'm always about to be asked something. I'm always not completely in control. I think it's... I have two funny things to say to that. One is remembering when my kids were little and I didn't have Wikipedia, much less a cell phone, but it was my child would go down for a nap and it's like, wait, do I do the laundry or do I take a bath? Do I, you know, do I do something for me or do I get something done? Mm -hmm. Um, The other funny thing, and this will, I know ring true to women everywhere and, Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe people everywhere is that the day finally ends. Everyone's asleep. You have folded the last load of laundry. You get into bed and one more person wants one more thing. (laughs) And you just want to go, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Totally. You know, you said something so striking when you said that quandary between getting something done versus doing something for yourself. And I think that line is so blurred a lot of times because I work with people, men, women, other folks, whoever they are, who say, I'm so used of trying to be productive that I no longer know the difference between something that's good for me that I need versus just crossing off something off my list. Because in my mind, if I go ahead and spend an extra hour doing this work, in a way, it's for me because I can justify it because tomorrow that'll be one less thing on my plate. So in theory, I'm doing a good thing by, you know, staying up until one in the morning and tackling this memo because I'll have a little bit less tomorrow. Of course, the problem is once that cycle perpetuates, there's never a little bit less tomorrow because you're always filling in the gap with something else and there's always more to come. So it's like you're on a treadmill rather than actually reaching the finish line. You know, what would you say to folks who say, well, my productivity, my overwork, It's ultimately for me because I'm just doing this for my own good to cross off my list. What would you say to them? I would ask them a series of questions to hopefully Mm -hmm. get them to see that Mm -hmm. that's ultimately not what matters most. When you ask people what matters most, they'll tell you family and relationships and all these other things, and yet they don't necessarily live a life in line with those priorities. I want to say that it shouldn't have to take the kinds of things it took for me to make those big changes in my life. For me, it took Mm -hmm. literally being hit by a car. Mm -hmm. It took being caught in a hurricane disaster, category four hurricane needed to be rescued. It took a cancer diagnosis. It shouldn't have to take those things to make changes in your life. And I know that habits run deep. 
and that when mm-hmm. you are used to and accustomed to answering, you know, that need or that perceived need to get more done. I mean, I get it. Been there, done that, wrote the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was But here's what I want to say. I live a very, very different sort of life now. Mm-hmm. And granted, I am very privileged to be able to do that, but I got to say when I remember to take time to meditate or do yoga, or listen to a piece of music without doing six other things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I reap the benefits. I am more centered. I am more articulate. I become a better writer because my mind isn't scattered in 42 places. We were not meant to multitask. Mm-hmm. Humans aren't meant to do that. And we keep getting more and more tools that allow us to do that more effectively. But again, it's at a price. It's at a cost. And it's at a cost not only to yourself, but it's even at a cost to your performance that you are claiming is so important. Yes. Yeah, the data on multitasking is so clear that we're bad at it, right? And that we're doing worse jobs on virtually everything because we're convinced. And that's not even taking into account once we get burnt out and do virtually nothing and close ourselves off and get disengaged and cynical. But I think that's so lovely what you were saying before, this notion of priorities and values. And that's something that comes up a lot on baggage check this idea of living in accordance with our values and living in accordance with those guideposts of what's important and being able to zoom out to that at times when we get wrapped up in the rumination of the current struggle to be able to say what part of this matters to me and even if something is really awful right now is there something that I can connect with within it that reminds me of the person that I want to be, the values that I have learned. I've worked with so many people who have said that the pandemic in a way illuminated that for them. And I think that's why we're seeing a struggle now is because there are pressures to go back to pre-pandemic life in the way that some people don't want to. Resist that. Resist that pressure. Absolutely. (laughs) At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember thinking, wait a minute, I can't leave the house and I'm not sick. I'm not recovering Mm -hmm. from an injury. What's Mm -hmm. going on here? And in Northern California at the beginning, we also had wildfires going on simultaneously with the quarantine. And so the one thing you could do, go for a walk, right? You then couldn't do because the air was so horrendous. Mm -hmm. And we had to figure out other ways. I want to mention something that I think can be very helpful, and that's ritual. Mm to stop the music and center oneself. It can be as simple as lighting a candle or taking a bath or the smell of whatever you put into the bath that then permeates the room. Really simple, simple things like that. Mm -hmm. Many of our religious traditions offer us this notion of pausing. Yes. The Sabbath. You don't have to be a practicing Christian or a practicing Jew to grab onto that concept and say, for one day a week, I'm going to tune into, for instance, nature. I'm going to get outside. I'm going to give back. I'm going to put my phone down. I have a little uh, cell phone sleeping bag. I don't use it, but I love the concept. Yes. You can put your phone in it and just say, good night, 
for some period of time and yes. and unplug. Mm-hmm. So these are different kinds of mechanisms that are free and available to us at all times. And I hear everybody now saying, yeah, I know, but my kid has a soccer game and I'm supposed to bring the snack and I have to go get the snack. And, oh, my God, there's a birthday party and I didn't get the present. Yeah. And I get that. I yeah. get that. But even carving out an hour for yourself each day, even if that sounds too much, half hour, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever you can manage to do to say this is time just for me. Yeah. Because it's really ultimately not just for you. It's for everyone that's close to you and everyone you work with. Oh, so, so true. And that ritual, even if it's just for a few minutes here and there of adding the sensory experience, I think is so important. Like you said, this bath smells nice. Or, you know, I tell people, okay, you're totally slammed. But during your morning coffee, you are drinking your coffee. So how about building in a little pause with your coffee to notice it a little bit more? to slow down your breathing during it, to feel the heat of the mug in your hands, as woo-woo as that sounds, that connection with the mindful sensory experience. And like you said, building it into a ritual, I think is so important. We've talked about this in the context of substance abuse too, that I think for so many people trying to give up their substance, whether it's alcohol or smoking, it's not just about the neurochemical properties of the substance. It's about, well, that was when I would talk to my coworkers when we would go out and have a smoke break. Or when I had my second cocktail of the night, I could finally convince myself that I shouldn't be doing any work. And so that slowed me down. Or when I had that cigarette first thing in the morning on my commute, it was a little bit of a brief time where nobody was going to approach me and ask me to do something. And I think we lose sight of how much the ritual can matter. And so then for folks trying to give up that substance, it's so important to build something new. I'm going to have that hot cup of tea at the end of the day where I'm not going to do any work and I'm going to sit and there's no alcohol in it. So it's going to be hard, but I'm at least going to get the pause that the ritual of the alcohol provided. And then you find out what was really the thing that was Mm -hmm. working for you. Um, Mm -hmm. We talk to ourselves all the time. We give ourselves messages. And I think it's quite easy to assume that we don't have control over that. And I learned that you really do. You can give yourself Mm -hmm. positive messages or negative messages. And Mm -hmm. you're going to be equally receptive to the messages that you keep giving yourself. And And we get into patterns and downward spirals of, and I, I'm sure everyone can relate to this of, you know, you're an imposter. You're just not good mm-hmm. enough. You're fit. You're, you've got them all fooled. Those mm-hmm. kinds of messages are so damaging. Whereas mm-hmm. empowering messages. And I also, I have to say, I was never a person who could do visualizations or that sort of thing. I was like, always, yeah, that's ridiculous. I can't, you know, I can't. And you know, when you're in trouble and you're and you need sort of any port in a storm, <laughs> you tr- you start trying these techniques that you had poo pooed at yeah. an earlier point in life, and you start to realize that you know if I say in in this case it was in the recovery from my accident. Have we mentioned that I had an accident? I don't know, but mm-hmm. a horrible accident, mm-hmm. 2012, hit by a car as a pedestrian, and my initial reaction 
as it was happening, and I was literally airborne because a car had hit me and I was flying up into the air. Thank goodness the car that hit me was a sedan, so I went up. If she had been an SUV, I would have gone down and she probably would have run over me and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. But as I was flying through the air, my entire self was screaming, really? Really? Mm. World, universe, God, whatever. Now this, I haven't been through enough. It wasn't enough to lose my mother, my sister, and my brother in a four-year period and be in the depths of hell. All the things I've dealt with with my kids and work and everything else, that wasn't enough. Okay. And I think at that point, it was a split second where I had an opportunity to either say, I give up, in which case I might not have made it, or what happened, and it wasn't really a conscious effort, it just happened, was my entire self went, all right, let's do this. We're going to do this now. And I think in part, I was drawing upon the strength of my ancestors. I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, I come from immigrants who left persecution in Europe and a lack of economic opportunity and came to this country with nothing and said, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. We're going to start a new life and make this work. And I think it's somewhere deep in me. But I think that very thing is deep in all of us. Yeah. If we tap into it. And yes, I was a self-confident person, but but this was kind of crazy. This feeling of I'm going to do this. I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm going to ask for help. I've never done that before, but I'm going to figure out how to do that. I'm going to try not to criticize the way my husband brings food to me because it's not exactly what I would have wanted or when I would have wanted it, but I'm going to remind myself that he's doing his best. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have somebody who loves them enough to make them the number one priority for a period of time. So so it was that. It was gratitude. It was stopping and always counting the blessings, counting the blessings. Yes, so much. And I know we kind of veered right into that. I think (laughs) listeners are probably like, wait, what, what happened to her? Why don't you walk us through, and I know this forms really the foundation of your book. Why don't we you walk us through the happenings of what was really, truly an extraordinarily difficult set of events for you at that time of your life? I know you alluded to it. You were coming off of an immense amount of loss, losing three very close family members in a very short time. It was tough. I was the baby of the family. And in very short order, I became the matriarch of a very big family. My brother Mm -hmm. had five children and grandchildren. My sister had children, grandchildren who were born after she passed away. And Mm -hmm. I became the keeper of the family tradition. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my home became the gathering place for the whole family who were scattered all over the country. And I had to make sense of the loss and also recover from often with lost people don't remember that you're not just recovering from the loss, you're recovering from everything that led up to the loss. Yes. So in my case, it was my sister's illness, which was five years, and my mother's decline, which was a lot longer than that, and all the things that happened along the way. Mm -hmm. And again, you're not doing that in a vacuum. You're doing that while, in my case, performing at work and performing at home and running this and volunteering for that and president of this and yeah feeling like I had to be all those things so yeah when the accident happened 
I suddenly lost my ability to do anything. I had four pelvic fractures and a lot of soft tissue damage. And I was hospitalized for five days. And then I came home and was in excruciating pain. And that had to be managed and all of the ensuing things. And um, it was a period of time of having to learn, really, how to be a very different person and how to not fight what was happening because it wasn't in my control. What was in my control was how I responded to my circumstance. Mm -hmm. So I had to focus on that. And apparently I only learned certain lessons because the universe continued to give me challenges slash opportunities. <laughs> you had the graduate school version of <laughs> upsetting events. Apparently. You went on for further study. As I was writing this book, Andrea, I had an editor working with me. And at one point she said, yeah, I'm having trauma fatigue here. Can we take out some of the things that happened to you? <laughs> I said, all right, I get it. Again, this is all about the reader, not about me. <laughs> so, yeah, a, a lot happened. and But a lot happened and I got to practice what I learned. And mm -hmm. I'm still practicing it. You know, you're never there. You're always a recovering nut job. You're always <laughs> <laughs> That's the new subtitle of this podcast, by the way, recovering nut jobs. <laughs> there you go, right? I mean, I you know, I I've battled depression and anxiety and I feel so so fortunate that I've lived in a time where there's really good help both mm -hmm. from therapists who've really done their homework and know how to help people and also SSRIs yeah. that can be so helpful. When I had anorexia as a 17-year-old, I was in Freudian psychoanalysis. Can you even imagine mm -hmm. as I continued to lose weight, I was 70 pounds and the therapist was saying nothing. And I was oh, lying on a couch talking yeah, because that's all they knew to do for people with eating disorders in the early 70s. Oh, my gosh. I mean, truly, that could be a whole nother episode itself is, of course, the struggle with eating disorders that is proliferating more so you were on the early side of it being so prevalent. Would you say that you see a connection between that anorexia as a young woman and some of the same achievement-oriented mindset that you had? Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think I became an anorexic rather than, for instance, an alcoholic or a compulsive gambler because in my family and in my culture, food was very important. And part of this mistaken notion in my mind of what perfect meant, as though this was achievable, mm -hmm. was skinny and not needing, right? So yeah. if I had, my mother would always say, I have willpower, I don't have to have dessert. And I hated mm. it when she said that. And it, yeah. I just like gr would grimace because I thought, well, dessert's enjoyable. Dessert is fun. Mm -hmm. and, and I felt like, you know, somehow I wasn't supposed to have fun. Yeah. And so I think becoming anorexic was sort of a, this enormous way of getting back at her. Mm -hmm. And also it was about control. Yeah. It's a lot about control. And and it's an anxiety disorder. So mm -hmm. I think I'm wired to be anxious. Many of us are. And 
all the more reason to develop good rituals, all the more reason to learn how to be still, all the more reason to give yourself messages that will counteract the messages that you're getting from the way that you're wired. Right. Right. So it took me a very long time to learn all of that. What did ultimately help you most in your recovery from anorexia? Because clearly psychoanalysis was not it, nor would we typically rely on that now as a soul treatment. What was your story? Uh, I I think I'm a survivor. I think think that I, in addition to the pain I was in, I also absolutely love life Mm -hmm. and am an adventurous person and kind of a juicy person. I love um, music and art and spicy foods and all of the things that make life rich. So even though I was denying all of that of myself and pretending that those were not things I needed, I really did want Mm -hmm. those things. And I think that over time, I was able to get beyond the patterns because it really is these messages you're giving yourself over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. I I can't stress that enough. And I'm not saying I stopped giving myself bad messages. I just stopped giving myself that bad message. (laughs) Right. I want to go back to what you said. It was really profound about how your identity changed, becoming the matriarch after having been the little sibling and to suddenly, and I don't think we talk about this nearly enough, when there is loss within a family, how it shifts the roles that the remaining people play. Usually around the holiday time, I talk with NPR Life Kit about holiday traditions, meaning holiday drama, family, all this stuff. And I would say it's a very common theme that comes up in terms of thinking about holiday traditions. Who is the keeper of the memories? Who is the quote-unquote matriarch or quote-unquote patriarch that bears witness to what came before and keeps it going? And in really a very short time, that role fell to you in a completely new way, it sounds like. In addition to grieving your siblings, how did you even begin to take that on and to shift into that and to reconcile that new need of what was being asked with you with your own need to grieve and to pause? So ironically, my brother passed away two weeks before Passover. And Mm. everyone was coming to my house that year from all over the country. And they still came. So literally in the midst of grief, we had a Passover Seder. My sister had always been the host of the Seder. And in her last year of life, I said, you don't need this this year. Let Let me host it. We lived close to one another. And she said, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to host it. I'm going to Mm. do this until I cannot do this anymore. When I took it over, I needed to change it. I needed to make it different. I didn't want to recreate her Seder, which was Mm -hmm. beautiful and meaningful and beloved by everyone. But I couldn't do her Seder. I needed to make it a little bit different. And over the years, I've continued to reinvent it because that's who I am. Mm -hmm. While I love tradition, 
I also love innovation. Our family keeps changing. There are now as many non-Jewish people as Jewish people. So mm -hmm. it's a very different situation. And my thing has always been, how am I going to make this meaningful for people so that they will value it and continue it for the next generation? So what do we do? We take pieces of what was and weave it in with themes and concepts that are going to really be on people's minds right now. Now, Passover, as it turns out, is a phenomenal way to do this because it is, in fact, a ritual meal with symbolisms and discussion encouraged and mm. creativity encouraged. And we put on a play and we have costumes and we have little frogs all over the place to commemorate the, the plague of the frogs. And what I see happening now, it's been many years. My sister passed away in 2006 and my brother in 2010. And now there are all these new people in the family, new in-laws and new children. And, and the littlest children are now not little anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a joy for me. It's a responsibility. In it, but above all, it's an honor and a mm -hmm. privilege to be that person. And I take that role probably more seriously than any other role in my life. Mm -hmm. Also, partly why I wrote the book, to mm -hmm. capture things about my sister and brother and mother and father so that all those who follow who will never get to meet them will get a sense of who they were. I love that. It's really in its own way carrying on the traditions in a completely new form but with just that same meaning of how did we connect to each other? How did we love each other? What really mattered? I think so much gets lost sometimes in having things be a certain way. Oh, this is the way we've always done it. We have to do the Seder this way. And like you said, it was important to you to make it yours in certain ways and shift it up. But that didn't diminish the meaning. If anything, it sounds like it enlarged the meaning. It grew it. It has since grown. It accommodates new people, people that were not part of it 20 years ago, but now are an indelible part. And I love that, it growing and, and changing in the best positive way, rather than saying, oh, the, it's bad. Things need to stay exactly how they were. They can't, because change is mm -hmm. inevitable. Change is absolutely yeah. something we must accept. Um, cute story, my great nephew, who again, you know, my sister's first grandchild, whom she never had the opportunity to meet, um, this year, and when we were preparing, I was on a FaceTime with him. He had just turned 13. And he said, I really wanted to sing the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song <laughs> at the Seder, but my parents told me, wrong holiday. And I said, well, <laughs> Charlie, let's write the Passover song. Let's just rewrite the lyrics <laughs> to that song, and then you can do it at the Seder. And he said, yes. We spent That's an great. hour and a half on the phone. We rewrote all the lyrics. <laughs> if you feel like you're the only kid without an Easter bunny, think of these Jews who hide the afikoman and are pretty funny. And then we went into a whole thing about John Stewart and That's Adam fantastic. Sandler. And all, yeah. So it, new traditions. Yes. I love that. I love that. So thinking about growth, obviously an immense amount of growth happened to you in the shadow of these tragic outcomes. And that's part of what your book really focuses on, too. One thing that stuck with me that really seems like it was an area of growth for you that was particularly difficult 
was having to ask for help. So there you are. You've been hit by a car. You have immense amounts of physical injuries. Your mobility, your ability to do anything is suddenly very, very limited. And it puts you in a position of being totally experiencing something completely different than when you were so self-sufficient. You were the one checking every box. What was that like? Even just where did you start with saying, "Uh uh-oh, I need somebody to help me here for something that I've never needed help for before? I was worried Um, when I was in the hospital. I was worried. How is my husband going to do this? This is not what he does. He's a wonderful, wonderful, caring, loving, creative man, but he gets involved in a project and nothing else in the world matters when he's working. And he totally rose to the occasion, but someone told me that the book is a love letter to him. Isn't that sweet? It's really sweet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that I would describe it that way, but if people perceive it that way, yay, that's great. But I didn't, I felt so diminished. I felt so pathetic and dependent. I think I had always prized my independence above all else. I remember teaching myself to drive a stick shift because I had to be able to do it. I <laughs> I had to be able to thread that projector in college and, you know, run the film yes. and not have to ask a man for help. Here I had to ask for help for everything. And I mean mm. everything. And mm-hmm. it was a horrible feeling, but I had to I had to make peace with it because if yeah. I didn't, I was the one who was gonna suffer the most. You know, that's, that's the thing is you have to evaluate, like, is this serving me? Is this behavior? Is this negative self-talk? Is this X, Y, Z? Is this serving me? Mm-hmm. And I was in such bad straits that I, if something wasn't serving me, I had to let it go. Yeah, it's true. And that really speaks to that idea of sometimes whether people call it rock bottom, whether people call it a, a crisis or a tragedy or a catastrophe, Sometimes it almost takes having control be stripped completely away for you to say, look, as a matter of survival, this is what has to happen and it's going to be uncomfortable and I'm not used to it and it's not my usual MO, but if it's not serving me, I might not survive. I might not make it through. So I've got to just get back to basics here and realign with my values of what's important and how I can move forward just on a step-by-step basis. What was it like for your husband to be in this book? Did you sort of talk to him as it was going about, here's how I'm portraying you, here's the stories I'm telling? Yeah, I would read different things to him. And often I think it was easier for him to just correct one little fact that I had gotten wrong rather than wrap his mind around how he was being portrayed. Also, he felt like, as did I, I mean, it was very hard to be going through these painful things again and again. And he's a recording engineer. We just uh, recorded the audio book. And so we had to hear it again. And, (laughs) you know, and when you do an audio book of a memoir, right, you're not just reading, you have to act it. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm terrified, I'm not going to go, I was terrified, you know, it's not going to work. You have to sound terrified. So um, that was another whole experience. Really, 
reliving, but it sounds like in a positive way, you know, we think about that with trauma all the time, how to allow people to face it and maybe re-experience it, but in a healing way, rather than the typical re-experiencing, which comes outside of their control, where they're having nightmares and flashbacks, or they're triggered by something. We want, as a goal with trauma healing, to be able to get to the point where you can take ownership of your story and you can re-experience it in a way that allows you to feel like you have control. Again, was that how it felt? Yeah, you? so I definitely was having flashbacks fairly mm. soon after the accident and mm -hmm. absolutely was traumatized. And at some point, and I don't remember how many months into my recovery, I heard about somatic therapy and that mm -hmm. I liked this concept of not having my trauma lodge in a particular place in my body. And um, mm -hmm. I was absolutely convinced of its efficacy on the very first session. And this is in the book when the therapist asked me, you know, I was getting into a bit of a meditative state and I was to imagine myself in a bubble and I was going to step off the curb and she wanted me to look to the right, which was the direction that the car came from. And I could not move my neck. Mm. My neck was not injured in the accident. Yeah. This was totally how the trauma had lodged. And by the end of that one session, I had movement in my neck. Wow. So that was absolute proof that trauma can lodge in the body and that there are ways to work through that so that you can move beyond the impact. I mean, we're, we're sensitive beings. Yeah. When something traumatic happens, everything is heightened and you protect yourself in whatever mm -hmm. way you can. And if danger was coming from the right, somehow yeah. this message had gotten into my brain that don't look. Right. When you think about it, it's the body's way of trying to store the memory for an adaptive purpose at first, right? Like, we're going to remember that there's danger to the right. So all hands on deck. We got to steel ourselves to that. And then, of course, it quickly becomes not so adaptive. I think there are so many emotional and cognitive and physical and even behavioral habits that we have as human beings that might have made sense in a way evolutionarily like hey remember this threat keep all eyes on this threat this threat could hurt you but in modern times woolly mammoths aren't coming after us anymore right it's like we don't need that bodily response but we still have those same bodies as we did ten thousand years ago so those same bodies say hold on to this with all your might this threat could come again you need to guard it. You need to remember it. And what's so interesting about some of the trauma research is that the body might as well be there again in that threatening situation. Your body on such a visceral level thought, oh, here we are. We're about to get hit by a car. It was as real as the original experience. And I'm so glad that you were able to find some help and some hope with that, because I think all too often we think of psychological healing as being something so confined to the brain. And we forget that the brain and the body, not only are they intertwined, they're the same thing. Literally, they exist in conjunction with each other. And you can't draw a line from one to the next. No. So I needed that kind of therapy. In this case, mm -hmm. it was somatic. And I know there are many other kinds of therapy mm -hmm. that are also highly recommended for trauma people. 
that's the one I happened to do, but I needed that therapy. I needed physical therapy. I needed mm-hmm. massage therapy. Yeah. You know, and again, I'm very fortunate that I had the resources to be able to get all of that help. Mm-hmm. Would I have recovered in the end anyway? According to the orthopedist, yeah. He said, you know, you're going to give credit to whatever it is that you do, but in the end, you'd probably still, I mean, I may not have had zero residual pain. Mm-hmm. I have zero residual That's pain, amazing. which yeah. is really kind of shocking. I also do yoga. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have long before the accident and I'm, I've doubled down since. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, like I can cross the street now without panicking. And that mm-hmm. took some time, but I'm not going to be riding a bicycle in the street mm-hmm. ever again, because right. I've decided that it's not worth the risk and that I feel too vulnerable on two wheels with distracted drivers everywhere. So I'm just not going to do that. I will get on a bicycle and ride on a bike path because Mm -hmm. that feels reasonable and safe. Yeah. But it's not inhibiting me, you know, the, the, the trauma or what happened doesn't prevent me from living life. I will say this, though. As a passenger in a car, I'm, I've am i always been a little on edge. I've always been that person who wants to drive. I like being in control. Mm-hmm. And if I don't like the way the person's driving, I get pretty anxious still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you speak to some very real threats there, too. I mean, unfortunately, I know you and I were chatting about this before the show, but reckless driving, aggressive driving, distracted driving, they're all going up. These cases are, are going up, and I think we haven't quite put our finger on exactly why that is. Obviously, smartphones and the distracted driving is a huge problem, but people are also driving more aggressively. It seems to have really spiked since the pandemic. There have been all kinds of hypotheses about it. Well, when we think about, okay, so you went through this incredible recovery process after your accident, but then there were still more hits to come. In the way of another crisis-in-the-moment type of trauma, being caught in a severe hurricane where your safety was in immediate danger, and then also, too, eventually a cancer diagnosis. What did those two particular new traumas have in common with the past ones in terms of the loss of your family members and your accident, and in what ways were they different? I would say that in all cases, something was happening that was beyond my control Mm -hmm. that I had to deal with, no choice about it, and that I had to rely on myself and what I said to myself and how I I breathed, for instance, how I learned to calm myself. Those Mm -hmm. were all absolutely critical. I'm thinking of some specifics. So during the hurricane, you know, I live in earthquake country and you don't get warning that it's going to happen and then it happens and then it's over and it's about like less than 30 seconds. And it's very traumatic and often there's terrible, severe damage, but you don't have the anticipation and the, the hurricane went on and on and on. And then there was this moment in the middle of the night when I thought it was over and my husband said, no, that's the eye of the hurricane. It's not over. It's going to be back again in another however many minutes. And he was exactly right. So then it got worse again. I did whatever I could to make myself feel safer. So I literally Mm -hmm. surrounded myself with pillows. I don't know. That just felt safer. 
I got really close to the wall. I was in a fetal position, doing different things to get through. And also to say to myself again and again, this is right this minute. This isn't forever. This too shall pass is an expression my mom used to always say when I was little and I rolled my eyes and said, you know, it sounded so shall, shall pass. This too shall pass. It sounded so lofty and ancient. And oh my gosh, there is nothing more valuable when you are in the middle of any sort of crisis or trauma or trying to absorb bad news. This is a moment. And when there's a, for instance, a setback after a surgery or after an illness or anything, asking myself the question also, oh, this is a really good one. First of all, is this forever? And is there going to be more information on down the road? Mm -hmm. This is another big one. Is this a fact or is this a what if? So mm -hmm. if my brain is starting to go, oh, no a cancer diagnosis, and then I'm immediately imagining my hair falling out and me vomiting for hours. And it's like, nobody said I needed chemo. Mm -hmm. What do I actually know at this moment? Mm -hmm. I know that I'm going to have surgery. That's all I know. I don't know what stage the cancer is. I don't know what's going to happen after that. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason to run scenarios. And every time I'd start, my brain would start running scenarios that would make me panicky. I would stop and say, do you know this? Mm -hmm. Is that yes. a fact? Is that a fact? Or is that you spinning? Yes. That has so much in common with what we talk about a lot on Baggage Check, which is the cognitive diffusion technique, separating yourself from your thoughts, being able to label them as thoughts, to be able to acknowledge when they're distortions. I'm having the thought that I'm going to be nonstop vomiting for the rest of my life. Okay, that's a thought. Is there truth to it? Is there actually validity to it? Or is it what we always say, an unreliable narrator? Is it telling me an untrue story? Can I recognize that as a distortion, a lens that I'm looking through, and maybe I can gain some distance from the lens and eventually take it away by labeling it a thought? And then sometimes some thoughts are true. Of course, you know, I have a cancer diagnosis. That's a terrifying thought. And in your case, it was true. But also being able to be curious and ask yourself, okay, what does this mean? What do I know? What do I not know? And if I start cycling, if I start ruminating, might I be adding stuff that's not yet a fact, like you said? Are these thoughts actually helpful? Are they gaining me strength? Are they gaining me insight? Or am I circling and circling and circling? And if I'm circling, maybe I can use some mindfulness techniques to pause and let those thoughts pass. I think so many times we're so afraid of our thoughts, right? And Instead, to actually look at them with curiosity, like you did. Is this true? I don't have to say, oh, my God, I'm having this thought. This is the worst thing ever. It's like, no, let's look at this thought. Does it have something to teach me? Or is it jabbering on like background noise, like the heckler in the mental audience, and it's not telling me anything of value? It's okay. I don't have to be afraid of the thought, but I can recognize that it can pass. And the other thing that struck me so much is that you literally had the metaphor of a hurricane and then you're in the middle of it where it's like, okay, maybe it's past. Oh, no, just kidding. It is not past. We're in the eye of the storm. But still, too, the rest of the storm passed as well. 
and that, you know, your mother was onto something when she repeated what some people might view as a cliche, but feelings are the same way too. Feelings will pass eventually. Feelings are not always permanent by any stretch. So, so many lessons there. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time today because I think there's so much there. I feel like we could have talked for an entire day. (laughs) But tell listeners where to find your book and where to find your work because I know that this resonated with so many people. Oh, I hope so. Well, I would say the simplest thing to do is go to my website because there you can sign up for my newsletter and there you can see links to my two different podcasts. One is called In This Story. They're three minutes long. They're my micro essays about all different. Some of them are funny. Some of them are, are poignant, um, but they're mm. short and they're set to music and they're a little, a little gem for your day. Oh, and my other podcast is called All the F Words, which <laughs> I, I do with a fellow writer who is nearly 30 years younger than me. So it's a two generational take on issues that happen to start with the letter F. So it's anything from fast fashion to fanaticism to fundamentalism to firearms to fetuses to oh I mean, my just, gosh well those are those are some particularly hard hitting f words and they're not even the f word i love that oh we don't do the f word we do all <laughs> the other f words all the f words so it's funny one of us researches each topic and we alternate and So we have all the latest information on whatever that topic is. The fast fashion one is uh, the one we recorded this week. And I have to say, because shopping in cheap stores is really a lot of pleasure for me. And I think Mm -hmm. I've now taken that pleasure away from myself by tuning into what this does to the environment and the small children in third world countries who are being exploited to make these cheap clothes. But I digress. Mm-hmm. The book is the power by- of the thrift store, by the way, that there whenever my guilt about that stuff gets bad, I, I just go on a binge at the thrift store. It's a great idea. <laughs> um, the book is called By Accident, A Memoir of Letting mm-hmm. Go. It is going to be published on June 20th, but it's mm-hmm. on pre-order everywhere on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and through your local independent bookseller and an audio book is available as well on Audible. So, and I'm reading it, so. Amazing, amazing, yes. And listeners, you should know that the pre-orders are hugely important in the book world. So make sure to check that out. Joanne, it's been so wonderful talking with you today. I'm so glad that we're connected and I really appreciate your time. Oh, this has just been a complete pleasure. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for having me on your show today. Thanks again. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.